Right, so I was telling you about my tarot card pull of the day today. Yes. And I got the Daughter of Swords, which, I mean, yeah, that's what I am. But, <laughs> so for the people who are not versed in tarot, what does that mean? So the Daughter of Swords is a young woman whose honesty and insights take her far in life. People truly value her frankness. She learns from keen observation. It almost seems as though she never stops watching. Sometimes this becomes a burden for her as she can't help but noticing this and that small detail that could have been done better. There's a potential for her to hold on to those experiences and become spiteful and judgmental. Oh, damn. I mean, I still think that's pretty accurate, right? Yeah, like, that's a yeah, good... yeah. That's pretty accurate. <laughs> <laughs> but um, as I was shuffling, there were two cards that like refused to not be acknowledged and they like flew <laughs> out at me and one was the empress and i was like yeah i i, I get it i'm the I'm empress aware. like I, you don't need to tell me <laughs> but the other card was the seven of swords and that card um ha keeps popping up it's popped up like twice in my daily card and then just randomly in some other readings and it basically yes. means somebody in my life I don't like when you stare at is me when keeping you say that. a secret from me that's terrible. Or I'm keeping a secret. Something is preventing... Should we talk? <laughs> I know. I'm like, okay, what what is going on, universe? Like, you're telling me somebody... So, maybe it's one of you listeners. Maybe you have a secret you need to get off your chest, and I need you to do it soon, because I am tired of this card popping Tired up. of this card! <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I feel like we I should, should do, it interesting. Should do a reading on me. You want me to... I mean, I can. Let's do it. I don't... I just... <laughs> okay, do you... I don't you know how it works. <laughs> Do you want I don't... me to just do a card of the day for you? So yeah, sure. something Let's to, like, that. keep in mind? Let's okay. So, one thing I have to do is learn oh, God. <laughs> how to shuffle. So that's <laughs> part of the issue. Slow. You should watch my mother shuffle cards. It's magical. <laughs> <laughs> but, so basically for the... Your cards are bent and it's driving me crazy. I... Alright, so your card pull. Wow. What does it say? You have oh, yeah. the strength card. <laughs> probably about it <laughs> no it's not it's actually really good um the strength card is i love the card it's beautiful it's a beautiful lion so with an for today, symbol on its forehead <laughs> for today the thing you need to think about is a mastery of emotions <laughs> it's common to think of this card as the roaring devouring side of the lion but look again the strength this card suggests is a much deeper force that's found within the line represents our most patient, composed self. He's a master of focus, compassion, and self-control. When this card comes up, you're in need of harnessing this power for yourself. All the courage you need can be found in the muscle known as the heart. Uh, mine doesn't work. <laughs> it does. This card just told you it does. Okay. So All right. there was our intro in, in tarot reading. <laughs> this is uh, Rachel, Rachel's tarot card. Rachel's corner. tarot corner. <laughs> You can learn along with me. I'm learning too. It just occurred to me that we never said what this podcast was. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kat. And this is Difficult Damsels. Welcome. 
So, um, we actually had a little film viewing in preparation for this episode. No, no, no. Don't say little. <laughs> it was a two fucking hour film and then some. It's two plus hours. Yeah. So oh. we watched the 1968 film The Lion in Winter starring Peter O'Toole, a very young Anthony Hopkins and Timothy Dalton, and then Catherine Hepburn as the titular character of... Eleanor of Aquitaine. I love how you you say a very young Anthony Hopkins, but you also don't point out the fact that Peter O'Toole is very young in that movie. Because the Peter O'Toole I know is the Peter O'Toole from, like, what was it, Troy? He plays the father, and he looks like he's on Death's Door. (laughs) Yeah, so (laughs) This is from, like, 50 years ago, and I'm used to Anthony Hopkins from Silence of the Lambs. So seeing a young Anthony Hopkins, I was like, ooh, girl. Ooh, girl. (laughs) Oh, look at him. Except, like, so Anthony Hopkins plays um, Richard, the future Lionheart, and his chemistry with Catherine Hepburn is awkward as hell. It made me so uncomfortable because they're mother and son, and I was just like... Rachel and I keep giving each other looks like, is this, are we on, is this happening? They just, they, their heads were so close together when they would have their conversations. A lot was close together, but it was awkward. Yeah. So, our episode today is on Eleanor of Aquitaine. The Lion in Winter is a film you can rent through Amazon Prime. It is also a play, and it brings these fabulous lines that Catherine Hepburn just delivers perfectly in the film. Yes. <laughs> um, and I wanted to share a couple, a couple of them with you guys. One was, he came down from the north to Paris with a mind like Aristotle's and a form like mortal sin. We shattered the commandments on the spot. Oh, shit. (laughs) And then there was the line, I want poetry and power and the young men who create it. I like that one. And I was like, me too, my friend. (laughs) There was, uh... God, Rachel's favorite line. (laughs) Made me laugh so hard. Catherine Hepburn's, like, staring into a mirror and holding up her jewelry, and she says, I'd hang you from the nipples, but you'd shock the children. (laughs) It's like 60-year-old Catherine Hepburn with a straight face delivering oh this amazing line. That's perfect. And then my favorite at the end is, again, Catherine Hepburn saying it. If you're brittle, it's because you're broken. Yes. And uh, that should give you a bit of an idea of yes. the woman we are going to talk about. So she was first the queen to King Louis VII of France and later the queen to King Henry II of England after having annulled her first marriage... For having failed to produce a male heir and generally disliking Louis VII. So she annulled it or he annulled it? Spoiler. Oh, sorry. You're going to have to wait and find out. (laughs) She is known to history as the wanton, voluptuous, tempestuous Eleanor of Aquitaine, a queen that instigated an unsuccessful rebellion against her husband in the name of her son, which ended with her locked up in a tower for 16 years until Henry II's death. Similarly to Empress Matilda, her equally famed mother-in-law, her prominence grew in her widowhood as the queen mother to King Richard I and later to King John. I remember you saying in the last episode that Empress Matilda refused to give up control to... Well, she did, and when we get to that, it was kind of 
easy for Eleanor. I wouldn't, I won't say to be pushed aside, but she had a lot of children. Mm -hmm. So the early portion of Henry II's reign was spent with her pretty much pregnant and giving birth. Yeah. Sounds terrible. Um, So Eleanor was one of the most powerful women in the high middle ages due to her extreme wealth from being the Duchess of Aquitaine in France. So a little historical context for the time period. 1135 to 1154 is the period of the Civil War known as the Anarchy, which which we just talked about in our last episode. Mm -hmm. From 1145 to 1148, the Second Crusade is launched. In 1162, Genghis Khan, founder of the Mongol Empire, is born. In 1170, Thomas Becket is murdered in Canterbury Cathedral. In 1184, Queen Tamar, King of Georgia, accedes to the throne as sole ruler and starts a new Georgian golden age. Wait, you said Queen Tamar and then King? Yes. Great. She was queen, but she ruled in her own right, so she was called the King of Georgia. Oh, okay. I've added her of my list. I was going to say, is she on the list? Because I would like her on the list. (laughs) Yes, she is on the list. We will cover her at some point. In 1189 to 1192, that marks... The time period of the Third Crusade, and in 1192, Richard the Lionheart, one of Eleanor's sons, defeats Saladin and the Treaty of Ramla is signed, leaving Jerusalem under Muslim control but open to Christian pilgrimage. And hello to our third host, <laughs> Miss Anya's made her appearance. Anya. Hi, and she's staring at me with love. Hi, what? Hello. <laughs> I think she wants you to pick her up. She does. Eleanor of Aquitaine's early years. We do not have a known birth date for Eleanor, but chroniclers, chroniclers, <laughs> put it somewhere between 1122 and 1124. We do know her death, however, and the exact age of her death at the age of 82 was in the year 1204. So this suggests that in all likelihood she was born in 1122. But there's no official date. Her Place of birth is also an approximate, suggested to be in either Poitiers, Bordeaux, or Nîmes-sur-le-Atiste, <laughs> all of which are French provinces. She's from France. She was the eldest of three children born to William X, Duke of Aquitaine, and Anor de Châtelet. It's French. How I you doing over I there? Do it. <laughs> Châtelet. I think that's it. Say it with confidence and you got Chateau it Chateau right. Leroux. <laughs> Scandal seemed to run in the family. Eleanor's grandfather was both a hardened crusader and a known philanderer. He supposedly had the face of his mistress painted on his shield. And William of Malmesbury famously said of William that it was his will to bear her in battle as she had borne him in bed. Oh my god. <laughs> he would later he would later arrange the marriage of his mistress's daughter to his son. It, not his daughter okay. to her. Wow. But I was like, okay, I understand that it's the time. So this is just giving thing. you an idea of the family Eleanor mm. comes from. It's a great family. They are not they are no strangers to scandal. Okay. <laughs> Eleanor's father was very invested in her education, and though she learned the more typically feminine domestic skills of household management, embroidery, needlepoint, and sewing, she was also taught arithmetic, history, and the constellations. 
She was famously extroverted, vivacious and strong-willed from a young age, and a jack-of-all-trades of sorts. She was skillful in dancing, chess, singing, writing, hawking, backgammon. I'm sorry, did you just say hawking? Yeah, so when they would go hunting, they would have the hawks on their forearms and send them off to go hunt down the prey for them. Oh, so she was a falconer. They called it hawking. Nope, she's a falconer. They called it hawking. Wikipedia said hawking. (laughs) But yes, she... Falconry. Yeah. Yeah. She was also apparently very knowledgeable about music and literature. She played the harpsichord and could both read and speak in Latin. Basically, she's just, you know, kind of a know-it-all. Apparently, (laughs) shit. (laughs) I can do maybe one of those things. I can for sure read. I would love to learn falconry. It's, I always wanted so to cool, also. But it's also, it's insane. Like, if it's you go, so much work. If you go to the Renaissance Fair, you can watch them. Yeah, they're, they're amazing. That was kind I mean, if we're ever able to that do anything canceled. in public ever again. Ever again. <laughs> yeah. So when her younger brother, William, died at the age of four, Eleanor became the heir presumptive to the Duchy of Aquitaine. Aquitaine is famously the largest and wealthiest province of France in this time period. I do have maps. <laughs> she has maps. <laughs> Around the age of 13, Eleanor became the Duchess of Aquitaine after her father died while on pilgrimage to the shrine of St. James of Compostela. This effectively made her the wealthiest, most eligible and sought after heirs in all of Europe. While Eleanor's father was on his deathbed, he expressed a heartfelt desire that King Louis VI of France become her protector and find her a suitable husband in his place. The king generously accepted guardianship of Eleanor, and not long after betrothed her to his son, the future Louis VII. I was waiting for you to be like, and then he married her. (laughs) (laughs) He probably would have married her if he wasn't already married. He dispatched several knights to where she was staying in Bordeaux, and essentially forced the marriage. Eleanor was 13, the future Louis VII was 17. (laughs) despite this forceful marriage it's important to note that the political implications for both of them would have been too tempting to pass up through eleanor the line of capetian kings um the line of the french kings Mm -hmm. gained the most powerful duchy in the region through louis eleanor had the chance of being a queen and her rights as heiress to the duchy protected on her own, it would have been difficult to fend off outside insurgents as an orphaned thirteen-year-old. I love how you. I love how it says forced, but at the same time, it's like she really didn't have much of a choice. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, I mean, forced is just like you're gonna do this, and she's like, "Cool, great." If if not him, somebody else <laughs> exactly. would have come in. <laughs> so Louis the Seventh famously was never meant for the French throne, um, given the fact that his older brother Philip was the heir. He fully intended to join a monastery, but Philip ended up dying in a tragic riding accident at the age of 15, making the deeply devout and pious Louis VII the new heir presumptive to France. This piety would later go on to be a huge point of contention in his marriage to the famously vivacious Eleanor of Aquitaine. (laughs) Oh, that's going to be fun. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So Louis VII and Eleanor of Aquitaine were married on July 25th, 1137, in the Cathedral of St. André in Bordeaux. The two were also crowned as king and queen, despite King Louis VI still being alive. 
as it was the tradition of the French kings to crown their sons before they died so as to ensure their succession. Interesting. Mm -hmm. But on August 1st, 1137, mere days after Eleanor and Louis VII had been married and crowned, Louis VI dies of dysentery. That's the... That's the father. The father. Okay. Yes. Damn. <laughs> so sh- Eleanor becomes queen in all earnest. Wow. Yeah. You're married. You're queen. Yay. Congrats. <laughs> Interestingly enough, though, the Duchy of Aquitaine was to remain independent until Louis and Eleanor had a son that ascended to the French throne. This meant her lands were to remain under her control. Ooh. Random note. Several kings die of dysentery during the Middle and High Middle middle ages basically don't drink the water it's all dirty that's why people drink a lot of beer in this time period dysentery is gonna come up again in this episode isn't beer made of water so beer is made of water but it's fermented so yeah i mean it goes through a distillation process they just hadn't figured out how to do that with water on its own so so drinking beer was a cleaner way of being hydrated. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> it should be noted that the Duchy of Aquitaine was vastly different culturally from the royal domains of France. Aquitaine was a cultural mecca, renowned for its revelry and intellectual pursuits. Louis VII, in contrast, grew up in a French court that was far more reserved, awkward, and religiously intractable, and made for quite a contrast to the more libertine Aquitaine. <laughs> awkward. <laughs> Eleanor famously said that she had thought to marry a king only to find out that she had married a monk. Oh, no. I mean, it's not wrong. He wanted to be a, a, he what, did. a he, monk, right? Yeah. He wasn't, something. he wasn't supposed to be king. Oh, my God. <laughs> the poor girl. She's like, I just want to have fun. And this guy is over here in the corner. <laughs> turning very into much the wall. Wanted <laughs> she very much wanted to have fun. And he very much wanted to pray to the wall. <laughs> That's the perfect description of the two of them. Oh my gosh. Somebody please draw that picture. <laughs> that would be and amazing. Send it to us. <laughs> so Eleanor herself was not favored amongst the court. She is notoriously criticized by the church elders of the time period. Not to mention Louis the Seventh's mother, Adelaide of Maureen, claimed that Eleanor was too flighty and had a bad influence on her son. How dare you. She, in turn, was said to have found the Parisian court to be incredibly dull, that <laughs> she being Eleanor. Yes. So Eleanor had no scruples using her, her new position as queen to help her family advance. She at one point encouraged Louis to declare the marriage between Raoul I, Count of Vermandois, and Eleanor of Blois, invalid, so that Raoul might instead marry Eleanor's sister, Petronilla. Oh, that's a cool name. Petronilla? Petronilla. This interference with court politics resulted in a very tumultuous domestic period and served as a blight on Louis VII's reign. By denouncing Eleanor of Blois, Louis made a powerful enemy of her brother, Count Thibault of Blois and Champagne. Does that name? name again. (laughs) I was going to say, you want to know why it's familiar? Because. Yes. Stephen! Yes. Wait, who? Thibault or the Blois? Dibbled is Stephen's older brother. I don't remember. I remember... We, we never talked about oh, okay. his family. I, was like, I remember like a Paul so Stephen, and like a Henry. So Stephen had Henry with him in England, but they owned the county... Uh, owned. They ruled the county of Blois. So 
His older brother was the Count of Blois. Your face was very intent when you said that. Trust me, as I was reading this, I was like, of course they come up again. (laughs) Of course. So war between Louis and Tybalt lasted for two years, taking place primarily in the county of Champagne. 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 Whatever, that's where Champagne comes from. (laughs) By insulting Tybalt, Louis and Eleanor had also insulted the church by soiling the sanctity of marriage. The end of that war was marked by Louis VII burning the town of Vitry, where approximately 1,000 people burned alive while seeking refuge oh. in a church. No. Yeah, that that will haunt him for the rest of his reign. And who did that? Uh, Louis VII. Why did he do that? Because he and um, Count Tybalt of Blois were at war. So uh, that, that Okay, but why would you burn a church with it, people in he it? He didn't go to burn the church. He went to burn the town, and the people fled to the church and the church caught on fire. So it was it wasn't in it. Oh, it wasn't like an overtly like no. he burned the church. It was the church. It was it was a consequence he set the fire the fire yeah. of the town. Yes, it was a consequence sure. of okay. attacking the town. Wow. And this will be um a major stain against his reign and a huge source of contention with him in the church. I obviously. Hope that was a stain against his reign. That's terrible. I mean, inadvertently, but still, it happened. Kind of the resolution of this war comes actually via Eleanor and a French clergyman by the name of Bernard of Clairvoy. I'm going to do a random aside here really quick on the two of them. The meeting of Eleanor of Aquitaine and Bernard of Clairvoy was a, a battle of titans, if you will. The date is... June 11th, 1114, and the setting is the newly renovated Church of St. Denis in what we now recognize was the first example of Gothic architecture. Bernard of Clairvoix was one of the most influential spiritual leaders of the Christian world and aboard all worldly shows of opulence for which he was now surrounded by. And then there stood Eleanor of Aquitaine, a woman of famed vanity and unbridled ambition, it goes without saying that she was less than impressed with Bernard of Clairvoy's infamous righteous indignation as well. So Eleanor would later be ch- chided by Bernard of Clairvoy, specifically for her interference in her sister's marriage and presumably encouraging the king to stir up trouble within the church. It should be noted that Louis VII was perfectly capable of doing this on his own without the aid of Eleanor, as he was already notoriously entangled in conflict with Pope Innocent II, due to a fervent disagreement on papal power when it came to electing bishops in his kingdom. This this conflict between monarchs and the church mm-hmm. is going to come up continuously over this time period. I was going to say, I remember that, that name Pope Innocent from last time. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so Eleanor famously made quite a show of being meek to Bernard of Clairvoy, blaming her behavior on a lack of children. Her lack of children was a point of contention in the court as well because, as queen, her singular most important duty was to provide the king with heirs. Despite the fact that Louis VII was said to infrequently visit her bedchamber, most likely due to prudish tendencies inherited from his time in the church... Because he's praying to that wall. (laughs) (laughs) Contemporaries of the time still laid the blame completely at Eleanor's feet as they often did with women of the time. That's very much like Catherine of Aragon. Aragon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So Bernard of Clairvoix was apparently convinced of the show that Eleanor put on, telling her, My child, seek those things which make for peace. Cease to stir up the king against the church and urge upon him a better course of action. If you will promise to do this, I in turn return promise to entreat the merciful Lord to grant you offspring. A year later... This is why I could never be in politics, because the first words out of his mouth were, My child, all right, bitch, you know what? (laughs) (laughs) A year later, Count Tybalt of Blois' lands were returned to him, and miraculously, Eleanor gave birth to her first daughter, Marie. (laughs) After all of this, it is the summer of 1145, and word has spread about the fall of the city of Edessa to Muslim forces, and so marks the start of the Second Crusade. Overwrought with guilt for his role in the massacre at Vitry, Louis VII has recommitted himself to the Christian cause and vows to lead this crusade and recover Edessa before more crusader states could fall. Pope Eugenius III publishes a papal bull at this point, promising to absolve the sins of any man who participates. This is how they got people to march on the crusades. Oh, okay. (laughs) That makes me so mad. Go ahead. Uh, I mean, this is better than just deciding to ship all of your criminals to the Holy Lands, which is what they do later. No, instead they flat out give them bullshit about, oh, I'm going to save you. Like, you can't... Anyway. Uh, yeah, they do that all that's the time. That's a different... It's kind that's of... a different conversation. <laughs> that's a different for podcast. For me in my past. <laughs> so Louis VII is the first crown king to travel to the Holy Lands in person. Eleanor insisted on taking part in the Crusades herself, and decked out in crusader robes as her husband had been, and took command of the soldiers that came from her duchy of Aquitaine. It's from here that we get the stories that she and her ladies dressed as bare-breasted Amazons and, like, (laughs) marched into battle. That's mentioned in The Lion in Winter. Oh, yeah. Um, Though this story still remains one of that, one of hot debate amongst historians. I think we can all put the debate to rest. They probably didn't actually do that. No, they didn't march bare-breasted, but she did bring her ladies with her, and they did march in the vanguard. So therefore, salacious tales are gonna happen, because... They bared their breasts. (laughs) Because it can't just be a woman going into battle. It has to be something extra on top. (laughs) So the Second Crusade was famously unsuccessful. Louis VII was said to be an ineffectual leader who failed to maintain discipline amongst the ranks of the men in his command. This is not a military podcast, so I'm not going to get us bogged down in the details of the battles that were fought, but instead just pull out a couple of interesting tidbits from this time period. So at this point, Christianity has essentially split into two parts, the East and the West. The West was represented on the campaign by France and Germany, and the East by the Byzantine emperor, Manuel Komnenos. The capital of the Eastern Empire, the last remnants of the Roman Empire, was Constantinople. Manuel Komnenos had agreed to a 12-year truce with the Turks at this point for the safety of an empire that was in such close proximity to the enemy. Because again, this is in Turkey. Yeah. yeah. So Eleanor and Louis VII traveled separately during the crusade. Louis had been committed to embodying the chaste lifestyle um, of a pilgrim so he couldn't have his wife with him. Eleanor's troop had the vanguard of the column and were even separated at one point when the Seljuk... Turkish army attacked the trailing baggage train in Louis' army. Eleanor seems to escape this particular skirmish unscathed. Eleanor and Louis, along with the rest of the French column, 
were reunited in Antioch, where they were welcomed by Eleanor's uncle, Ramon of Portier, who was the Prince of Antioch. That title and the lands of Antioch were acquired, guess how? Something ridiculous. <laughs> by his marriage to the then 10-year-old Princess Constance of Why Antioch. <laughs> I didn't do this. I'm just... Oh my god. <laughs> I think it's important to remember that this bullshit happened. <laughs> So it had been Ramon's goal to use Eleanor to convince her husband to turn his army towards Aleppo and Syria. But Louis had other plans and was determined to instead march towards Jerusalem and join up with the German king. This is when relations became irrevocably strained between Louis and Eleanor, and rumors of an inappropriate relationship formed between Eleanor and her uncle. This spread like wildfire across Antioch and the whole of Europe. <laughs> so historians today generally dismiss those so-called affections as the normal affection shared between familial relations. But the most salacious tales you will hear about Eleanor come from the critics who liked to inflate her reputation as being wanton and claim that the two were engaged in an adulterous and incestuous affair. So... Did their can the contention between Louis and Eleanor come from those rumors, or did those rumors start because they were fighting? It was more of a consequence. I mean, at okay. this point, so part of it was she wanted him, she wanted her husband to go to Aleppo with her uncle, mm -hmm. and Louis was very much against it. Yeah, and at this point, their relation relationship was already kind of strained just because of the difference in who they were as it people. Strained. <laughs> yeah. And this just fueled the fire. Um, on top of that, she'd been traveling in the <laughs> Holy Lands with everyone else. She was exhausted. She was tired. And by the time they got to Antioch, in her uncle's court, she just, she flourished. She was, she was having a good time. Everybody loved her. So she found her place yet again. Yeah. And her husband. She, she was allowed to be her natural self. Yes. <laughs> so it didn't help that Eleanor was said to feel at home in the court of Antioch. And she and her uncle chose to speak in the dialect native to their home in Portier, which was unfamiliar to the French soldiers. So they basically saw her and her uncle like huddled in the corner speaking a dialect they didn't understand. And so the stories just continued to... So naturally, the natural progression... Of course. ...of anyone. <laughs> They're having an affair. So in the book She-Wolves, Helen Castor remarks of this relationship. There is no way of knowing now whether her affection for her glamorous uncle had grown into a full-blown affair. A relationship which, in the minds of shocked contemporaries would constitute not only adultery, but incest. Almost nine centuries later, and with limited and partial evidence, we cannot with any confidence sift fact from speculation and innuendo. But speculation and innuendo, there certainly were. This relationship would, for would forever mark her as the scandal of Europe. It didn't help that she did not care. Well, yeah, I mean... <laughs> People had brought this to her attention, and she She's was like... like great, okay, because yeah. it's bullshit, probably. She, she, <laughs> she flaunted it, oh my honestly. So, it, that's just who Eleanor was. She didn't care at all, Yeah, which I, didn't help. So, Louis and Eleanor would eventually make it to Jerusalem, and while the French army would go on to wage an unsuccessful campaign in the Muslim city of Damascus... The king and queen would stay behind and instead make a tour of the Holy Land's most sacred sites before finally setting sail for home from the port of, I think it's Acre? 
in the kingdom of Jerusalem. So by the end of the crusade, relations between Eleanor and Louis VII had deteriorated irrevocably. You doing all right over there? <laughs> so many words. I don't know why I pick the hard ones. <laughs> they took separate ships to get home and were attacked by Byzantine ships in May of 1149. It would be approximately two months before the two would resurface. Eleanor in Sicily, where she received shelter from King Roger II of Sicily. She's having an affair with him. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm sure. You know what? Honestly, I'm sure people would have said something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and um, King Louis VII had emerged in Calabria. It was at this point that Eleanor learned of her uncle's death, who had been killed during the Battle of Inab and beheaded by the uncle of Saladin. So recovering from her initial capture in the Mediterranean and grieving the loss of her beloved uncle, Eleanor was essentially done with her marriage. <laughs> she wanted out, and she wanted out now. Wow. <laughs> On their way home to Paris, they stopped just outside of Rome to visit Pope Eugene III. They made a pit stop annulment. It was literally on the way home. That's so great, though. Can we just beg? Can we just... Can we just stop right here? <laughs> you know what? Um, there's a Look, dude over the Pope there. is there. That's so weird. Let's go ask him to I fuck this like shit up. I feel like he might be able to do something with this marriage thing we have. It's just not You can it. marry him, <laughs> So while visiting Pope Eugene III, Eleanor asked for an annulment, initially citing the fact that she and Louis were related in the fourth and fifth degrees. The reality at this so point... So was everyone, anyway. Was that all the nobility of Europe... <laughs> was related to the same degree and whether or not the church could deny a marriage or annul a marriage on the basis of consanguinity, the level of which people are related to one another, could be decided on a whim. It was often used by men that wanted to get rid of wives that no longer posed a political value to them. Eleanor decided she wanted to do the same. Good girl. <laughs> Though Louis had initially agreed to Eleanor's requests for an annulment, the Pope denied them and attempted to reconcile Eleanor and Louis VII, presumably to protect the sanctity of marriage from the capricious whims of nobles. He even arranged to have a special bed made for the two of them so that they could copulate, leaving Eleanor little choice in the matter. That sounds like... Them. Okay. Yep. God, but it's fine because the Pope said it, so it makes it better. <sighs> it oh. should be noted that contemporaries of the time recorded Louis' reaction to this so-called papal blessing excitedly as he still apparently loved his wife. Eleanor's reaction, conveniently, was never recorded. Conveniently? Because she was probably like, I'm about to murder all of you. For them, <laughs> yes. Ew, ah, oh, okay. Eleanor apparently resigned to her fate with cool detachment. She eventually gave birth to a second child, and perhaps it was her saving grace that this child was also a girl, who she named Alice. This was the ace up Eleanor's sleeve. Her primary responsibility was to provide the king with a male heir to ensure the succession of his line. It had been 15 years since the two had married, with no male heir in sight. Though Louis tried to cling on to his marriage, he faced unrest from his barons, and at last an annulment was granted on March 11th, 1152. It just floors me that back in that time, it was like, give me a son. I'm like, yeah, hold on. Let me just consult the ovaries. <laughs> so I'm going to give you this now just so you have a map and an idea. She has the maps. Is this the same map from last time? No. No. Okay. So we've added um, Aquitaine. Oh, yes, we have. To England. 
Europe's wealthiest heiress was once again on the market, her hand in marriage and her lands up for grabs. As Eleanor traveled to her home in Portier, Tybalt V, Count of Blois, and Joffrey, Count of Anjou, both tried to kidnap her in order to force her hand in marriage and claim her lands. Was this Joffrey the son of Empress Matilda? It was! Look at that! Good job! I'm so proud of you. And the younger brother of a very young and handsome Henry, the Duke of Normandy. Hell yeah. So Eleanor, after this, reaches out to Henry and proposes her hand in marriage. Oh, hell yeah, girl. She's like, hey, what's up? (laughs) I know it doesn't happen this way, but it's happening this way. (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah, so this union was likely not a coincidence either, as the young and handsome Duke of Normandy had visited the French court seven months earlier to broker a peace with the French king after having previously been at war with him. They were married on May 18th, 1152, just eight weeks after her annulment with Louis VII. Go get it. (laughs) She doesn't waste, she's not waste any time. She did not waste any time. She couldn't because people were literally trying to kidnap her to steal her lands. Eleanor was 28 and the future King Henry II of England was 19. So at the time, Eleanor and Henry were said to have met. He has been campaigning for his throne in England for a couple of years now, taking up the mantle left by his mother, the Empress Matilda, in her fight against King Stephen. When Henry finally ascends to the English throne, he adds the Duchy of Aquitaine to England's rule, granting England control over the entire western half of France. Whoa. And yes, I have maps, and they will be on (laughs) Facebook for all to see. Henry appeared to be the perfect blend of his grandfather, Henry I of England, and his mother, Empress Matilda. From Henry I, he inherited the physicality of his grandfather. He was known to rise up at dawn every single morning to hunt. He was known to work tirelessly, refusing to let his courtiers sit while he stood standing, often leaving them in utter exhaustion. What a dick. (laughs) From- I hate him because he rose at dawn, and I'm like, anyone who rises before, like, 6 o'clock in the morning is a monster. And Basically, all you need to know is this dude works hard. Just because he caught up at dawn. <laughs> From Empress Matilda, he inherited a curiosity and intellectualism that put him at home in, dis- in his discussions with scholars. He was, for all intents and purposes, the perfect match for Eleanor of Aquitaine. At least in the beginning. Oh, no. There it is. <laughs> I don't know why I trust things when you say them. I just, <laughs> I get all excited. I'm like, well, you've you know. already seen the movie. You know how this ends. I know. Yes, I do. You're right. <laughs> but I keep hoping. <laughs> but Henry could still be obstinate. Remember that word in our discussion with Matilda? Yeah, because men, it's fine if you're obstinate. But women, if you're exactly. obstinate, no. So he was apparently. Oh, witch. Sorry. He was prone to fits of rage when he didn't get his way. Also, I would just like ever. I would like to point out for everyone that in that movie, Peter O'Toole screams a lot. <laughs> there is a lot of screaming in that movie. It was very in character. Yeah. <laughs> so fits of rage, I see. <laughs> On top of that, Henry was unforgiving to those that betrayed him, yet paradoxically quick to break his own word whenever it suited him. Men. God, I, that's like the worst quality. <laughs> oh yeah, in no, a I, that's not something I would tolerate at all. You can't betray me, but I can do whatever I want. And that's indeed, like, kind of how his reign went. Yeah. You, you said that very, like, aggressively towards me, and I got scared for a second. You. <laughs> <laughs> 
As was often typical in dynastic marriages of the time, Eleanor and Henry were cousins three times removed from one another. Oh my god. <laughs> you thought the Bathory incest was bad. I mean, I, I love how I, like, have issues with this, but, like, in my book, the two are cousins. Yeah. So it, <laughs> it was unfortunately commonplace. Another salacious rumor that had been running around at this time was that Eleanor had had an affair with Henry II's father, Joffrey of Anjou. At what point do you just, like, go with that and, like, you just antagonize the shit out of every rumor? I think that's what, I, from what I I hope gather, that's what she's doing. That's kind of what. Because that would make me so happy. Because, I mean, honestly, if you're going to say stupid rumors, I'd be like, you see from this? what I could, from what I read about her uncle, it very much seemed like that's what she was doing there. She just okay. didn't care at that point. So maybe that's what the director of the movie was trying to get at when they had her and Richard be so awkwardly close. Well, do you remember in the movie too? She taunts Henry. She says like, "Oh, that's Did true. I sleep with your father?" That's true. Oh yeah. She's like, "Did I? Don't you wonder?" I don't know. At that point, I was kind of like, "Is." I know. We're at like the two hour mark. So two and a half years after marrying, Henry II became King of England on October 25th, 1154. Eleanor was crowned Queen of England a couple of months later on December 19th, 1154. We're gonna gonna do a little sidetrack right here. What makes a good queen in this time period? (laughs) Keeping your mouth shut, sitting down, or standing up. I don't know. (laughs) The responsibility of a queen consort and the merits with which contemporaries judge the quote-unquote success of a queen were as follows. I feel like this is about to floor me on so many levels, but continue. I don't know. I think you touched on many of the points already. Oh, okay. So the primary duty of a queen is to produce male heirs. In addition to producing children, a queen was judged by her piety. Was she a patron of the church? Did she uphold its tenets and perform her charitable duties? Queens are also known for their soft power. Whereas, whereas what does that even mean? Continue. I'm about to explain. <laughs> it, it'll make sense in a moment. So, whereas medieval kings were judged for their prowess on the battlefield, medieval queens were expected to temper their husbands. They often made public appeals for their kingly husbands to show mercy when dishing out the hand of justice. Kings were expected to be strong and immovable yielding to the softer nature of mercy, if only because they were moved by the gentle nature of their wives. So the good queens of this period are said to have, like, these elaborate shows of, like, literally going on their knees before the king and pleading, like, please don't kill this person. So that's what it meant to be a good medieval queen. Okay. When it came to her primary duty, Eleanor far exceeded all expectations, producing eight children, five of whom were sons. I'm sure Eleanor got some satisfaction in the fact that she was able to give Henry a large broad of sons, given the fact that the French court had blamed her exclusively for the lack of sons she and Louis produced. Broad or brood? It's probably brood. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just want to say that I would be the worst queen in this time. Oh, you would be beheaded. Oh, it would be great, though. <laughs> You'd be too obstinate. I wouldn't shut up until my head They would gone. send you to a nunnery, and you'd be too much for them. They'd oh, I'd probably... turn the nunnery into a party house for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so in total, Eleanor had ten children. Marie and Alice were both by Louis VII, and they went on to become duchesses. Ten children. Yes. That sounds terrible. Continue. William died in his infancy, infancy. Henry the Young King, 
referred to as Young Henry. She had Matilda. She had Richard I of England, who would go on to become King Richard the Lionheart. Joffrey II, the Duke of Brittany. Eleanor, Queen of Castile. Joan, Queen of Sicily. And John, also the King of England. That's her... Oh, John is the weird... Yes. Awkward one in the... Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there, kind of. <laughs> so during the first 15 years of their marriage, Eleanor was largely preoccupied with the duty of child-rearing. Her role was largely relegated to appearing with the king during ceremonial gatherings. The chief woman of Henry's council at this time was the formidable Empress Matilda, and she would remain as such until her death. I'm kind of sad that Empress Matilda didn't have a part in that movie. I mean, obviously it was way after her time, but that would have been awesome. (laughs) It'd be cool to, like, see the two of them interact. Yeah. The marriage of Eleanor and Henry II was said to be very tempestuous, despite however fruitful it was. I would imagine the qualities that initially attracted them to each other served to repel them later in life. That's usually how it works. It is. (laughs) Henry II would become a notorious philanderer in his own right, and he fathered several illegitimate children during their marriage. And although Eleanor was said to be largely ambivalent towards his extramarital affairs, I mean, again, par for the cause. I mean, she gave him five sons and she's still queen, so. Well, she was, she was worldly enough to understand this is what kings did. Mm-hmm. So she was, she was mostly fine with it so long as he entertained them discreetly. But there is one mistress that stood out above the rest. Is that the one that you hated throughout the entire movie? No. Oh, this is they they talk about her. Okay. So oh, yes. So chief amongst Henry II's mistresses was Rosamond Clifford, a renowned beauty of the time and said to be the love of his life. By the time Henry took Rosamond as his mistress, relations between Henry and Eleanor were said to be irrevocably strained. Eleanor could not abide Henry blatantly flaunting Rosamond in her face much less the rumors that he intended to divorce her and marry Rosamond in her place. So, this is... He couldn't have? No, no, no. So this is irrelevant. It's just, I want to know. You probably Mm -hmm. don't know. But what's the difference between annulment and divorce? Annulment says the marriage never happened. It was never valid. Okay, that's dumb. Anyway, continue. Yeah. So adding to the many salacious and slanderous rumors about Eleanor of Aquitaine was the supposed story that she had poisoned her rival, though these stories did not emerge until a couple centuries later during the Elizabethan era. Her rival being Rosamond? Yes. Okay. We know this story to be largely false because by the time Rosamond died in 1176, Eleanor had already been imprisoned. The Kingdom of England was in a perpetual state of unrest um, during Henry's reign. Although England had absorbed Aquitaine through Henry's marriage to Eleanor, Aquitaine predictably refused to submit to Henry II and answered exclusively to Eleanor. On top of that, Henry would forever be embedded in war with his family. The early years of his reign would have him putting down revolts led by his younger brother in Anjou, and the later years of his reign entrenched in warfare with his sons. Henry II was also engaged in a battle of wills with Thomas Becket, formerly his closest advisor and best friend. Thomas Becket was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and his friendship with Henry II dissolved due to their disagreement with the king's jurisdiction of secular courts over clergymen serving in England. Thomas Becket famously wanted clergymen to have more independence from the king, and Henry wanted the opposite. 
On December 29, 1170, four knights broke into Thomas Becket's church, demanding that he surrender himself in answer for being a traitor to the king. Becket refused, and amidst the chanting of monks, the four knights murdered Becket. I remember that. This moment was forever dramatized in pop culture due to nobles supposedly hearing Henry II say, Will no one rid me of this turbulent priest months earlier? Thomas Becket's assassination would forever be a blight on Henry II's reign, and Thomas Becket himself would later be venerated by the church as a martyr and named for a saint. When when they say, you know, he said this months before, it's like, that's like with every person who is possibly looked at for committing a murder. It's like, well, you said this months well, ago. And I was like, do you understand how many times I wish something bad upon, like, I don't actually, but so like that's when kind you of, say it out loud. That's you know? literally what it was. And they had been, they'd been at war with each other for years. They had this, they were basically best frenemies. So there were times <laughs> when they would reconcile and then their two personalities would clash and um, Beckett would have to flee for France. Oh my God. And finally, I guess he just got so fed up, said that, and a couple of knights heard him, and it was a brutal murder, and it's, like, one of in the most... In a church. In a church. Yep. So both her husbands had issues with someone, people, someone, getting killed in churches. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Yes. Despite the strained relations between Eleanor and Henry... Henry? Henry. <laughs> and Henry... He still entrusted her to act as his regent while he made tours around the kingdom. After Eleanor had birthed her last child, she was finally able to take on more of an active role in the kingdom. The Duchy of Aquitaine being as large as it was and occupying the, the southernmost portion of the English kingdom was in need of a deft ruler, and so Henry dispatched his wife, confident in her charisma and her skill to keep the duchy under control and thwart outside attempts to overtake it. Eleanor was finally going home, and all the happier for it as it offered her an opportunity to exercise some political autonomy at long last. Eleanor ends up setting up her court in the city of Portier. Her son, Richard, was already set to inherit the duchy after his father passed, and so he joined Eleanor in Aquitaine so that he might familiarize himself with the culture and the politics of the region. In doing so, he developed a close relationship with his mother, and became enshrined as her favorite. And that's that awkward relationship we see in The Lion in Winter. <laughs> it's not It's not the relationship that was awkward. It was the it was weird their, chemistry, it was between, their chemistry between Catherine Hepburn and Anthony Hopkins. It, she had chemistry with everyone. It was really weird. It was awkward. <laughs> it should be noted that Eleanor was for all intents and purposes ruling in Aquitaine. Charters issued from the duchy were done so in her name or listed alongside either her husband's name or her son's. Henry II appears to have been perfectly confident in his wife's ability to rule in Aquitaine and offered little to no interference during this time period. Another quick side note here. The court Eleanor establishes in Portier becomes known as the Court of Love. It's from here that you start to see the ideals of knightly chivalry, courtly musicians and performers, and the romantic I can never say this word. Romanticized? Romantization. <laughs> of courtly love begin to emerge no it's a hard word romantization of why is that a word (laughs) i don't know courtly love emerges in europe from this time period eleanor and her daughter marie along with several other french noblewomen 
were said to have sat in judgment of questions and tales revolving around acts of romantic love. According to folklore, one of the questions posed to the court was whether or not true love could exist in marriage. The women apparently decided that it could not. I mean, at that time, no. <laughs> yeah. Because they weren't married for love. They were married for And that was politics. precisely it. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, it's very, it seems very rare nowadays, too, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> but. <laughs> so it had been Henry II's intent to divide his kingdom among, amongst his sons following his death rather than bequeath the entirety of the kingdom to his eldest son. To young Henry, that's what we'll call their eldest son at this yeah. point. Hard quotation marks around that. <laughs> well, they had another son, but he died. So young Henry, he intended to leave the entirety of England and the duchies of Normandy and Anjou. To Richard, he intended to leave Eleanor's duchy of Aquitaine. And to Joffrey, he intended to leave the duchy of Brittany in Western Europe. Their youngest son, John, was only three at the time and not considered at this point in the inheritance. That'll later. They can get married, but they can't inherit anything. Well, it's just that's going to be an issue. It's like you try to give your sons everything, but you forgot one of your sons. Yeah. They didn't forget him. He was just, he was too young. To cement what would come to be known as the settlement of Mont Rural, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> Young Henry was crowned in Westminster in Henry II's presence in the style of the French kings that did the same in order to guarantee their son's successions. Young Henry grew disenchanted with the fact that his father had not really relinquished any of his power or lands, despite all pomp and circumstance being observed publicly by the king. Traditionally, kings would bestow upon their sons an earldom or a duchy so that they might rule in their own names and generate some income. Henry did not do this with his sons, and in 1173, his own son, young Henry, led a rebellion against him. Well, don't they do the make, giving them duchies and everything like that to get them practiced in running yeah. their own To whatever? get them practiced and yeah. really to establish them. Yeah. And he hadn't... He'd, he'd named them, but he hadn't actually given them any power. It is likely that young Henry had been egged on by his father-in-law, Eleanor's former husband, Louis VII. When you say egged on, I just think like... <laughs> <laughs> well, so young Henry had been married to Marguerite of France, which was Louis VII's daughter, by his second marriage. Gotcha. I'm really <laughs> happy that you saw my face in that. <laughs> oh, believe me. When I first read it, Ooh. I was like, wait. Hold that, the phone. That's wait, not that okay. Louis? Are they half siblings? <laughs> so Louis VII had claims on English lands through his daughter because she was married to young Henry. When young Henry turned up at the court of Louis VII, he was not alone. His brothers Richard and Joffrey eventually joined up with him. For Eleanor's role, it is said that in addition to encouraging her sons to support young Henry, she also rallied the southern lords in France to rise up and support the rebellion as well. Henry II of England was now facing an open revolt from his sons and his wife. It should be noted that chroniclers of the time had no answer for why Eleanor deflected, and she herself provided no official response. We can only speculate as to what her motives were at this time. Maybe she was tired of her cheating lying husband. And... <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine that while it's tempting to pin the bulk of Eleanor's frustrations on the fact that Henry II was openly flaunting his mistress, 
It's also more likely that she felt the same frustrations as her sons. Eleanor was running Aquitaine, but the money it generated filled the king's coffers in England rather than Aquitaine's. Mm -hmm. So like her sons, the promise of power was offered publicly but denied in practice. On top of that, Henry had abandoned her hereditary claim to the French county of Toulouse and essentially put the autonomy of Aquitaine itself into question. So he didn't exactly help his cause. No. <laughs> the revolt ends up being short-lived and was swiftly put to bed a year later. Eleanor's punishment for having supported her son's rebellion against their father was imprisonment. Eleanor would be moved around to various locations in England for the duration of Henry II's reign, a total of 16 years. So she was the only one who was punished? Yes. Cool. I mean, great. <laughs> I'm sure he gave a stern talking to to his sons, but they were not imprisoned. Wow. Even okay. though they're really the ones that can. They literally were the ones that led the revolt. She just whispered in a couple people's ears. Well, so <laughs> supposedly to that end, young Henry was 18. Joffrey and Richard. So Richard was 15. That's and... like midlife in that time. <laughs> it's not though, as you'll find out. Richard was 15 and Joffrey was 13 and they were both in her care in Aquitaine. The only reason they would have to go to Paris to join up with their brother is if she told them to. So she did very much okay. play a role in this. Yes, but she was still the only one who was put in a prison. Yes. Anyway. <laughs> well, she's the only dangerous one. She's also the, yeah, she's also the only one that like you said, has that sort of like power to yes. make them do that. That power of persuasion. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. And that's so, very, very scary for a king to see a queen yeah. flaunt that type when of it, power. It apparently blindsided him. Because at the time she Dude, was, it blindsided you that Eleanor of Aquitaine had some spunk? <laughs> it blindsided um, him that she would actively revolt against him because he was, quote unquote, allowing her to rule in Aquitaine. Like, she had a good thing going. Yeah. But she also has her sons that she loves. Yeah. So in spite of the fact that she was locked away, young Henry continued to rebel against his father after having been denied requests to take on more leadership roles within the country. Both his brother Joffrey and Philip II of France supported these revolts, supplying troops to young Henry. In 1183, young Henry caught dysentery. I love how you say caught dysentery. Like, <laughs> just throw the ball, Dad! <laughs> Someone really needs to tell these people to stop drinking unfiltered water. Oh my gosh. Is that the only place it can come from, is unfiltered water? Or can it come so from So basically, other usually they're drinking water, like, from the river. And the river, especially if there's been fighting going on and there's dead bodies in the water. Or someone's pissing in the water upstream. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's just no source for clean water at the time. But on his deathbed, he is said to have pleaded with his father to release Eleanor from her prison. Her imprisonment was loosened a little in the wake of young Henry's death, but it was mostly due to the fact that portions of Normandy were now in dispute because Henry and the because of Henry and the King of France, because again young Henry had been married to Marguerite. So now uh -huh. on hit because he died, he died, the king was trying to say that those lands go to his widowed wife works that's how it worked for eleanor her family died and she became the queen not the queen the duchess <laughs> a 
a lot of a lot of women make a claim when their husband dies for their lands, especially. I mean, yeah, but a lot of women get denied. No, really. If they have sons, they don't get denied. Marguerite didn't have sons. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Henry II dies on July 6th, 1189 at the age of 56. It was said that he had become progressively sicker in his, finer, in his final years, due in large part to the never-ending campaign that his sons waged against him. After young Henry had died, Eleanor and Henry's son Richard took up the mantle. A more formidable foe on the battlefield... Richard had secured the support of Philip II of France in his campaign against his father. When his youngest brother, John, publicly sided with Richard in the conflict, it was the proverbial nail in the coffin for Henry II, and he was said to have collapsed into a fever and possibly died of a broken heart. Or, you know, other things, like a heart attack. I forgot to mention that while Eleanor is imprisoned... She's, her sons are kept away from her because Henry does not want her talking to them. Yeah, he doesn't want the the snake in the ear. Yes. (laughs) And she's pretty much only ever brought out for special ceremonies, like around Christmas. Like a goddamn show pony. Yes. And that's exactly, that's one of those Christmases that the line in winter takes place. So. (laughs) Yeah, I doubt she was happy about that. No. Richard's first official act as the new king of England was to have his mother released from prison. Interesting little tidbit. Richard sent William Marshall to release Eleanor, who would later go on to become one of the most famous Norman soldiers and knights in English history. He gained his fame some 15 odd years earlier when he had rescued Eleanor from yet another kidnapping attempt. Recognizing his skill and valor, she had taken him on as a knight in her household he would later go on to serve under five English kings. Wow. He's he's one of the most, like, famous English knights. All right. And she's the one who, like, recognized his skill and made him a knight. Yes. And he's the one that's sent to release her. Hey. Hell yeah. <laughs> so as I've previously mentioned, it is often after their husband's deaths that queens are able to fully come into their power as the queen mother. And Eleanor was no different. It was Eleanor that accepted the oaths of fealty from the lords and prelates that came to pledge their loyalty to the new king in Westminster. She would later go on to rule England in Richard's name as he spent much of his reign on campaign in the Holy Land during the Third Crusade, which is where he gains the moniker of the Lionheart. In his absence, a council of regency was formed by Richard's lords, and although Eleanor was never officially part of this regency, she still employed a significant amount of influence over the court and decisions made for the English government. I just want to point out that it's pretty funny that you pulled the the strength card this morning, or today, mm. right before this. <laughs> and it was a lion, and now we're talking about the lion heart. I also pulled the empress for myself. Hell yeah. <laughs> Maybe the cards were talking about the podcast. The cards, no! So when Richard was later captured in Vienna and handed over to the Holy Roman Emperor, Henry VI, and imprisoned in Trifles Castle, Eleanor had been responsible for raising the ransom for Richard and negotiating his release. Eleanor would go on to outlive Richard I, who was, interestingly enough, felled by an errant crossbow bolt from a boy that claimed he was avenging the deaths of his father and two brothers. I love how they call it errant crossbow bolt that bitch aimed 
I mean, yeah. <laughs> Aaron just they just sounds the better. Aaron sounds better because it's better than saying, "Dude, the king got shot by a five year old boy." Well, so he was like in a battle, and then a crossbow bolt hits his shoulder, and he dies of gangrene. Good lord. Um, and apparently that boy was aiming. Richard didn't blame the boy and pardon him on his deathbed. That's awesome. Yeah. That's cool. I like that. Good. Eleanor's youngest son, John, would go on to succeed to the throne of England as Richard had failed to produce any heirs. During John's reign, Eleanor was once again called upon to assist England in a truce between King Philip II of France and King John of England. To secure peace, John would marry off one of his sister's daughters, his sister being the Queen Eleanor of Castile, to Philip II's son and heir to the throne, and Eleanor was instructed to make that choice. At this point, a 77-year-old Eleanor of Aquitaine makes the journey to the Kingdom of Navarre and Castile. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, he trusted her to, like, make that selection and... I'm just wowing the, she made that journey at 77. (laughs) Exactly. Well, that's why everyone gets confused with the whole life expectancy thing. People died more frequently just because of everything going on. Well, these are also rich people who have a little more safety and a little more everything than... If you could live your life and survive the wars going on around you, your life expectancy was still 70 or 80. It's just, can you live through all the other stuff yeah. going on. Yeah. But yeah, people often say like, old age is at 50. It's not. It's just, you either die in childbirth or you die on the battlefield. Yeah. Otherwise your life expectancy is considerably higher. Okay. So 77 year old Eleanor makes this trip and she once again is ambushed and kidnapped by a nobleman named Hugh the Ninth. Girl, take the target off your back. <laughs> So his lands had been stolen and sold off by Henry II. That's why he kidnapped her. Gotcha. She once again has to secure her own release. <laughs> and who, who kidnapped her again? This was Hugh IX of Lusignan. I don't know much about him. I okay. just read this. And the, the big thing that connects them is the fact that it was a grievance that he had with her late husband. Dude, my husband's dead. Leave me alone. She's like, <laughs> I didn't like him either. <laughs> you and I are both on the same page. <laughs> By the time Eleanor makes it to her daughter's court in Castile and would go on to... I can just imagine her walking into this court and be like, someone get me a drink. Somebody get me a goddamn drink. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) She would end up selecting the youngest granddaughter, Blanche, to marry Philip II's son. Blanche would later go on to become the Queen of France after marrying Louis VIII. Interestingly enough, Louis VIII also ends up dying of dysentery. (laughs) (laughs) stop drinking the water (laughs) stop drinking the water (laughs) so eleanor saw little rest during her final years having to step in during yet another english revolt when john's nephew arthur of Brittany, this was the son of his brother joffrey okay made a claim for the english throne against king john at 15 years old arthur managed to siege eleanor in the castle of mirabeau in western france but after John hears of this, he marches on his nephew immediately and captures him. Eleanor, at this point, decides to officially retire and becomes a nun. I was going to say, she's like, come on, you guys. I'm 77. I'm not even in this game anymore. I think she's like 80 at this point. She's done. Please let me off the board. This is your chess game. 
let me just hang out in the corner over <laughs> like, here. I'm done. I don't want any more part in politics, guys. <laughs> Eleanor of Aquitaine dies on April 1st, 1204, at the approximate age of 82. Presumably of old age, or maybe just of exhaustion from all the ridiculous infighting of her stupid family. (laughs) (laughs) By the time of her death, she had outlived all her children, save for King John of England and Queen Eleanor of Castile. God, that's got to be hard to outlive your children. Yeah. Just to give you an idea of the strength of will that was her character, the duchies of Normandy, Anjou, and Brittany all fell within a year following her death. Oh, wow. King John was unable to hold off Philip II of France, and all that had been gained through William the Conqueror, who'd come from Normandy, and Empress Matilda with her marriage to Joffrey of Anjou, had been lost. The singular French duchy remaining in control of the English crown was Eleanor's beloved Aquitaine. And this is Eleanor of Aquitaine, one of the most resilient queen consorts of English history, a woman vilified as being wanton and libertine by her contemporaries, yet undeniably resilient and willful of spirit. She was truly a fascinating woman and lived one hell of a long and eventful life. And I would imagine the scale with which we judge our difficult damsels in the future will range somewhere from damsel to Eleanor of Aquitaine. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. (laughs) So that's Eleanor of Aquitaine, and it is time for our questions. I don't think anyone other than... Catherine Hepburn could have played her. <laughs> I agree. It's, it's so true. She just had this amazing presence yeah. on screen. And she was very She convincing. also had this very, like, this underlying sass that, like, never mm-hmm. went away no matter what she did. And I was like, this is great. <laughs> Even when she seemed like she was in danger, she still had this. She was still so sassy. And yeah, I, this oh. presence of, like, come at me. Yeah. Really try like, it. I have lived a very long <laughs> and eventful life. Please try it. <laughs> All right, so was Eleanor of Aquitaine more difficult or more damsel? Um, I think she was damsel because she got kidnapped every five minutes. <laughs> she definitely she definitely has some damsel moments, but to her credit, she's often the one that orchestrates her own escape and negotiates her ransom. That is true. The one exception, of course, being William Marshall saving her. That is true. Yes, okay. I think she's also... She's also difficult. I she's mean, extremely difficult. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying she's not difficult. I just think it's funny that she's a little bit of both. Yeah. Simply because, you know, when we say damsel, we're saying like the old school damsel yes. that we always think about. It's yeah. like, a, like this the fainting damsel waiting for a man to the rescue one who's her. Just, I'm like, if I was her, I'd just walk around and be like, who wants next? Who wants next? <laughs> oh no. She was very much like fucking try it, man. <laughs> yeah. She quite literally made her name by being difficult. Oh, I didn't ask you this. I didn't give you this question ahead of time. You monster. So of all the salacious tales linked to Eleanor of Aquitaine. Yes, you did. Oh, okay. Which one was your favorite? (laughs) Um, It's got to be the uncle only because I can just see her like. like, You just love the absolute headstrong, no fucks given. uh Uh-huh. I do. Part of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I do. I like, I just, I can just imagine her. And again, Catherine Hepburn in my brain, completely. Mm-hmm. Just imagine her being like, yeah. Like taunting everybody. Hey, I'm going to hold his arm here, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I think mine was hands down the fact that she demanded an annulment from the Pope and was able to get it. <laughs> the drive-by annulment. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, she didn't actually get it for a few years after that. 
remember. The request was a drive-by. <laughs> so Eleanor succeeds where Henry VIII fails later down the road, acting on an autonomy that was no doubt anachronistic, anachronistic for the time. And as a little piggyback to the annulment, I also love that she basically saw where the future Duke of Normandy, where his future was leading, and proposed to him, effectively choosing her second husband. I forgot she proposed her. Yeah, I like that yeah. too. That's amazing. <laughs> that was cool. So Helen Castor remarks in She-Wolves that Eleanor had done this with determination, fearlessness, and an utter lack of concern for the world's verdict on her conduct. Not only do I admire her deft skill in this, but I admire her bravery in acting in her own self-interest in a time when, when when women simply did not have the recourse for accomplishing this. Oh yeah, I, I love, that's what draws me to her, is her, yeah. her just obstinance and her complete, complete lack of giving two shits yeah. about anyone else as far as what they think of her and, you know, that that's amazing. That's what you strive to be as a human. <laughs> yeah, she's truly badass. Yeah, I like yeah. her. <laughs> I would love to sit down and have a beer with her. I know. Yes. Like a non-dysentery beer. <laughs> <laughs> a clean beer with Eleanor. Can I have a clean beer with you? <laughs> you wouldn't want a wine because she is in that, Aquitaine is in that portion of France that has all the It would have to be Bordeaux. really good wine. Le Bordier. Le Bordier. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's I made where. I that sound really Spanish. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's where um, a lot of the wealth of Aquitaine came from was from the wines. Yeah. And our random question, I figured this was oh, yeah. fitting, fitting given our discussion on the advent of courtly love in the medieval ages. So to start off with, do you believe in soulmates? So that's a tough question for me. <laughs> I like the theories behind soulmates and I like writing about soulmates in the fantastical sense, mm-hmm. the it's hard for me to believe in soulmates. I thought I was your soulmate. Oh, shit. Um, (laughs) Yes, I totally believe in soulmates. (laughs) No, I mean, okay, so here's why I say I don't believe in it in the real world is because I've not experienced it, witnessed or experienced it. Um, I want to bring up one of my favorite, um, like theories, philosophies behind, um, soulmates and what a soulmate is. So it's from, uh, the Symposium uh, by, Plato. by Plato, and he says there are three different kinds of human creatures, man, woman, and individuals with both sexes. Humans originally each had four arms, four legs, two faces, four ears, and two sets of genitalia. It's interesting. Apparently, humans became arrogant and began to question whether we might take the place of the gods. Naturally. <laughs> this pissed the Greek gods off enormously they were horrified you can't take the place of gods in any religion yeah (laughs) so the the gods were horrified by this idea that their the humans could you know basically overthrow them so finally after some debate zeus split them in us being them being humans in half rendering them less powerful and condemning us to spend our lives yearning for the other half to complete us i like that i like that idea yeah so, and then it's, it goes on to say, to provide comfort, Zeus allowed us to have sexual intercourse with another half. The creatures who had been only male sought out another male. The female sought out a female. The creatures with both sexes sought out the opposite sex half. God, the Greeks were so interesting. The Greeks were amazing. <laughs> I like your version better than mine. Well, I like, I also well, like your version too. kind of is 
linked to a second question, but I like too that it 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 very much encompasses homosexuality. It's not. Oh yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not outright male and female. It's whatever your preferences. Exactly. It's you. Your other half is whatever. Whatever your other half is. It's whatever you are. Yeah. Exactly. So I kind of. I kind of just really like that idea, and and I had researched that for a book that I'm writing, and I just it kind of stuck with me, and I really liked it. I think there was beautiful. There was another one about where you're connected to your other half. I don't have it like exactly where it was from, but you're connected to your other half through a a, a string, mm-hmm. like a obviously it's not like a like a string like string, but like string of fate. Yeah, like yeah. that, and that and that pull you feel is that string pulling taut or loosening oh yeah that's so cool (laughs) right (laughs) yeah I think what I had was well so the traditional definition of a soulmate is the idea that there's one person out there for everyone which I don't believe no but my personal belief is that a soulmate is more of a kindred spirit and everyone has multiple soulmates and they can be as platonic as they can be romantic These are your two peas in a pod type of people, the people in your life that challenge you and encourage you to grow. So that's definitely us. Well, I would, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. I have a few people in my life I would consider soulmates or people who've helped me to open my eyes to things. Not only would I have never considered, but like flat out have rejected I think I think that's why I have such a problem with the idea of soulmates is like the old school, like that they're your other half or whatever but I like that idea where it's like yeah you don't have to love the person always and forever we we were socks that came out of the same package and we recognize each other and we're like hi (laughs) I saw a meme with that it's um oh my god that was amazing you just said socks and I looked at your brand new hug my amazing cat socks my (laughs) knee-high socks that I'm wearing right now (laughs) she you guys she asked Anya to hug her earlier because her socks told Anya too and Anya flat out was like not happening (laughs) soulmates are not your other half that's just nonsense you're a whole person already not half a person a soulmate isn't even inherently romantic a soulmate is just the other sock in a matched set you're still whole a complete sock on your own and you are perfectly functional paired with any other sock it's just that it's even better when you match a soulmate is literally just the person who makes your soul go same hat and wave excitedly. Oh my god, I love that. <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite way of looking at it. That's cute, I like that. So the thing you bring up with Plato actually kind of reminds me a little bit of the idea of a twin flame. Mm-hmm. So a twin flame is the idea of one soul being split into two people. Your twin flame is your mirror, as they are literally the other half of your soul. This is often represented in the chaser slash runner dynamic that exists in some romantic relationships. The purpose of the twin flame relationship is to teach the chaser how to stop chasing and let go, and to teach the runner how to stop running and learn how to confront. The chaser chases the qualities in the partner lacking within themselves, and the runner is running from the qualities in their partner that scares them the most. Only after these qualities are confronted and mastered can they come together again later in life. Wow. <laughs> it's it's one of those, I love the concept, mm-hmm. but I think it gets thrown around way too easily with people being, like, especially with toxic exes. Oh, yeah. You're like, this person's my twin flame. No, bitch. That person's just a but toxic you're not asshole. Suppo- you're not supposed to be with your twin flame if you're still... 
yeah, that's the whole point. You can end up with your twin flame, but you have to first completely you have to grow as a person and yeah. become like quote unquote. You complete. have to you have to break from them. Yeah, you have to quite literally accept the possibility that you will never meet again. And the whole idea of the twin flame is when you encounter them, it's literally like the earth shaking beneath your feet because you're about to be propelled on to the journey of your true life's purpose. Deep. Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting concept. Yeah. Fox Mulder in the X-Files. I want to believe. <laughs> you know, I never actually have seen Really? That I've seen... It's good. ...episodes, and I, I think I saw the movie that came out. There was a movie, right? Uh-huh. But I never... I never actually it's good. sat down and watched that show. It's funny. We talked about The Lion in Winter, which my high school friend was obsessed with mm-hmm. when I was in high school, and they never watched it. And that was the other thing we were obsessed <laughs> with was The X-Files. Yeah. So hi, Sylvia, if you're listening. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> and then, so the third kind of type of partner in relation to this is the karmic partner. Mm-hmm. So this karmic partner like it's gonna be a problem. is your karma come back to haunt you. You've done wrong either in your current life or a previous life, and this person is your comeuppance. Oh, wow. And it means, um, I mean, if the people who believe in karmic partners, yeah. the idea is that you have a lesson to learn, you keep not learning it. So if you find yourself in patterns when it comes to relationships with the same kind of people Mm -hmm. you've met your karmic partner and you have not learned your lesson so you're going to keep encountering the same people break that cycle you need to figure your shisa out exactly (laughs) it is your accountability coming to knock you on the head that's really scary to think about (laughs) those are i don't know i always found those three things to be very interesting yeah 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 i do i really i love the idea like i'm a writer so of course i love the idea of a soulmate but like Twin Flames. Yeah, but like... In This Moment has a song called Twin Flames. They do. Yes. I love that song. (laughs) Now you know what it's about. Yes. Yeah, I just... I just... I haven't seen anything in life to really make me believe Mm -hmm. in that. In the the love matching of soulmates. Obviously, you and I are soulmates. (laughs) Better be. Okay, calm down. That or I'm your karmic partner. You're prop honestly, you're probably my karmic partner. Jesus Christ. <laughs> what lesson do you need to learn? Are you my seven of swords? What is your secret? <laughs> I need to know. Whoever's <laughs> listening, what are you keeping from me? This what are you card keeping? keeps popping up. <laughs> there we go. I'm probably inadvertently keeping a secret from you because I just don't remember anything ever. <laughs> <laughs> so um my sources for this episode. Primary sources were Wikipedia and She Wolves by Helen Castor. And Eleanor of Aquitaine, as we've all learned, lived quite the eventful life. This could have easily been multiple episodes, and indeed, there are many podcasts out there who cover her. So, if you are interested in learning more about Eleanor of Aquitaine, Queens of England and Rex Factor both do fantastic multi episode series on her. I would highly recommend checking them out. All right. All right, guys. So thanks for listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed Rachel's story. Monologue. (laughs) I know. Um, I need water. (laughs) You have water. Uh, It took me. So this was a, we had a shorter. Turnaround. Turnaround. Because we recorded late due to the holiday. 
I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> this was like 15 hours during the week. Um, oh, wow. So our plan is to put these episodes out twice a month. And this is the reason. I, I love how you say twice a month instead of every other week. Every other week. <laughs> so every other week because I, I can't handle doing this Because every Rachel week. <laughs> is doing research because I've got a lot of other things going on and because she knows that she'll do better research than well, I Well, I, I like doing the research and you're doing the editing so it works out. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah thanks for listening and we hope you guys stay difficult. And come back. And yeah, please come back. But mostly stay difficult. Stay difficult. Hey, all you difficult damsels, it's Kat and Anya, and we just wanted to say thank you so much to everyone who's tuned in and given us a listen. Uh, Rachel and I are so grateful for each and every one of you for sticking with us as we learn and grow and become official podcasters. Uh, We are only on episode three, and we cannot thank you enough for all the support and love so far. We are actually going to take... A quick break for the holidays, but fear not, we will be back with more Difficult Damsels soon. We hope that you stay difficult and tune in for our next episode. You guys can visit us on Facebook at Difficult Damsels the Podcast, or if you would like to reach out to us, you are more than welcome to email us at difficult.damsels at gmail.com. Again, We appreciate everything and we hope you guys enjoy your holidays and enjoy your new year and stay difficult.